I'm Colleen, and this podcast is an inside look at recovery, which I define as a lifelong journey to get out of your own way and become your own best friend. Join me for mindset upgrades that move you from worry and regret to resilience and confidence. I'll share easy strategies for how to feel better without having to make major changes. Because it's not what you do, it's who you are. Self-care is the path to recovery because our needs are not negotiable. Taking a leading role in your own life is simultaneously one of the most courageous things that you've ever, you could ever do, but also the most mundane. It's not acts of valor and bravery every single day. Some days it's just getting out of bed yeah. and taking a shower. And the more we recognize that the mundane are the moments that become the mythical nature of our lives, the sooner we can embrace our half yeah. wild. That is Whitney Dermick, author of Half Wild, a prayer for a generation of roaming malcontents. In this conversation, Whitney and I explore the emotional disconnect that has haunted us both since childhood. We've always felt like outsiders looking in, and we've been changing who we are and what we like to fit in with the people in our lives. We discuss the shame that we felt about our bodies from an early age and how no one ever told us that shame is normal and not a sign that something is wrong. Whitney's book details her journey both to sobriety and into the recovery of herself, which requires, as we all know, learning how to get out of our heads and listen and accept ourselves. The funniest part of the book for me was when Whitney says, the only evidence that I had that I drank too much was that I consistently drank too much. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. So I'm just so excited to be doing this interview. I finished your book and it was my best friend for like a week. I, I read it slowly. Um, it was my just before bed book because I didn't want it to be over. And it was so good. So I thought today, one of the things I would do is share some of the different sections and how they landed with me and have you kind of respond and explain. But before we get started, why don't you introduce yourself, who you are, what you do, maybe a little bit about how you came to write the book. Sure. I'd love to. First of all, thank you for having me. Very excited to be here. My name is Whitney Dermick. I am the author of a book called Half Wild, A Prayer for a Generation of Roaming Malcontents, which is part travel memoir, part existential crisis, and it's an autobiographical look at my journey through intense anxiety and uh, binge drinking and trying to find my way home, both in a literal and spiritual sense. Um, I'm also a professional freelance copywriter, and I live in Asheville, North Carolina. And in the book, you talk about how you came to Asheville. And are you in a relationship, you, you have a home now, right? Yes. Yeah. I'm dialing in from a home that I purchased in Asheville. I, I bought the house about a year and a half ago. I live here with my fiance who I found in Asheville. He and I both 
moved here randomly uh, right at the beginning of the pandemic. I love pandemic. how you say I found my fiance in Asheville. Like your fiance was just walking around. Mm-hmm. He was lost and uh, you you found him. <laughs> no, Colleen, you're not wrong. That, that is not incorrect. He was just this lost fiance looking looking for his person. And uh, that's the right, rescue, exactly. I guess, is the real question. <laughs> I think it was a mutual oh, that's rescue. So, good. so you're a copywriter. What kind of companies do you write for? What kind of copy do you specialize in? It runs the gamut. So my background is in high tech. That can take the form of a startup pitch. It can be helping them build a content strategy. So their email campaigns, marketing collateral, webinar content. It really runs the gamut. And then I also, being based in Asheville, which is such a creative hub, I work for a, work with a number of solopreneurs here who are uh, coaches or healers or massage therapists. And that's more of a passion project where I love working with enterprising people and helping them express their magic with the most well, impact. I don't want to skip to the last part of the book because I want to walk through it. But the last part of the book, you do say something about maybe someday I will be writing for myself or or using my words to promote my own stuff. Like if you had a magic wand and it was, let's go 10 years from now just to keep it non-threatening, but how would you articulate what it is that you offer to the world? What's your specialty? Oh, that's such a potent question. <laughs> That's okay. I love it. I love it because it's almost like I'm planting a seed okay. with the universe. Let me, let me go get some shit to um, cover over it. <laughs> no, the shit will come shit, naturally. You know, that's where they grow. The shit will always come. There is no shit deficiency <laughs> in this universe. I mean, my dream job is to go have wild experiences and write about it. Like, I want to be the Hunter S. Thompson of luxury retreats okay. and spas. I think you'd be really good at it. But <laughs> After I think... reading your book, I want to go where you've <laughs> gone. I want to see through your eyes. I mm. think you bring such a cool perspective, almost the perspective of an artist, because it's not really your ability to draw if you're an artist. It's your ability to see the angles and the light and the shadows and all of that. And I, that comes through very clear in your book. Thank you very much. That's an incredible compliment. And it's, it's something that I would want to talk about with people out there who are creating content because content is such a commodity right now. There's so many people doing books and podcasts and blogs and newsletters. And it's amazing because it's an opportunity for us to all discover and express our unique genius. And what's happening is it's getting commoditized into content. And for so many of us, we're not content creators, we're artists. We are translating the world as we see it into, like we're creating a unique lens for our experience that can bring people along on our on a story. And so- what you just said is essentially my favorite compliment that I've ever gotten because I do want to be more of an artist well, than a content and I can, creator. I can share from my own personal experience that the writing of the vision and the process or whatever it is as a coach that I do, having to articulate that in a way people understand actually creates the product 
for lack of a better word. Every time mm-hmm. I, ch- I create a new webinar or I create a new sales page for my program, my program changes because of the words. Mm-hmm. And when people respond, you know, they say words are your wand. And it truly is a co-creation with people. You know, I respond to what people tell me they need and want. And then in the writing of it, I actually am creating the result for them because Mm -hmm. that is the first part of of map reading 101. You have to identify where it is you want to go and you have to be able to describe it and explain it if you want to get there. To me, that's what coaching is. I help people figure out what they want and then create it in their imagination first. And that is such a huge part of writing. It's so true. The, the knowing what it is that you want and knowing your core values and your foundation yeah. is half the battle. And when I went into, when I first quit drinking, that was my biggest problem. I had no idea what I wanted. No. I didn't know who I was. Right. You know, I, I didn't know what I want. I remember my husband a couple weeks in saying he was proud of me and wanted me to take, he wanted to take my needs seriously. And what did I want? And he showed up with a pencil and paper and his little eyeglasses on. And he's like, what do you need? I could not answer that question. Like I I didn't have one thing to say. I was filled with all this resentment and frustration Mm -hmm. and anger at him or Mm -hmm. so I thought. But when it came time to pull it out of my mouth, I had nothing to say. If we could, I'd like to read a couple passages for you and we'll just go through a little bit one by one. You talk about how you were never able to let your personality develop because you were so busy changing yourself to fit into different circumstances. And I also moved around a lot as a kid. So that really resonated me with me. But then on page 86, you said, I silenced it at every turn in favor of trying to arrive at the next best version of myself through trial and error and the reward of external validation. And I became completely untethered. The only way to keep from drowning in confusion and self-doubt was to prove categorically and unequivocally that I was worthy. Whoa. I mean, you just nailed it describing me. Talk to me a little bit about how you came to see so much that you didn't see. How did you realize that you were always changing in response to what other people wanted to see and needed from you? Hindsight. It was absolutely hindsight. I didn't realize it in the moment because I didn't have that I didn't have the foundation. We started moving when I was 18 months old and didn't stop. So as soon as I had a stable footing underneath me, it got ripped away. And the only option that I really had to cope with that was to make adaptation my personality. And so I don't regret that piece of it because I think adaptation is an incredible skill. I think being able to surf with whatever the world brings you is necessary. But what I didn't have was any sort of root that when, you know, when there was bullying or when there was peer pressure, when there was a choice to be made, I didn't have a touchstone to return to. And so what I what I would do is grasp for some external piece of Mm -hmm. authority 
and let that make my decisions for me. But I was never, I was never obsequious to authority. It wasn't, you know, parents, teachers, coaches. It was always, let's find the authority of culture. I, I was essentially raised by TV, as I think a lot of kids of the 80s, 90s, and 2000s have been. And so I would defer to the authority of what are the cool kids on TV doing? Because they're so happy and pretty and perfect and healthy, and they've got cool friends and they drive cool cars. And if that's what I want to do, they were essentially my role models. And so I would just do what people in songs and books and TV shows were doing. And of course, course I got destabilized because none of that is real. They do not have consequences to their actions. And if they are, they do have consequences. They are, you know, the credits roll and it's a new slate the next day. And I think that's a big thing that led me to drinking was this feeling an immense amount of pressure of the consequences of my actions and not being able to face the fact that I didn't feel grounded in any of it, that I couldn't really defend who I was. I couldn't, you know, if somebody said, why did you do that? Why was that the choice you made? I'd be like, it seemed right at the yeah. time. I didn't know. Yeah. Well, it's funny because I can think of characters that I modeled my own performance on. I mean, I was Jenny Garth from 90210. I mean, mm -hmm. for real. And I so identified with that. And to me, any problems I had, you know, I was just trying to, what, what, what lines, what are my lines here? Like, I don't even know my lines. And right. it was destabilizing because when I did revert to what I thought and felt, it felt scary and foreign. And that is why even today I catch myself performing the role of myself. Like I have sold you on my character. Here's my story arc. Here's my evolution. You know, here's foreshadowing for what's to come. And it's, it is so weird. And I think it's interesting that you and I both equate that to moving or somehow being a little bit destabilized, a lack of community, but don't you, do you, I guess I won't assume, do you think that most people go through that? And in some ways, having the experience of recreating ourselves so often let us realize we're all wearing masks. Whereas if you grew up in the same mm. town with the same people, you would never really know that you are a character in a story that somebody else is writing the lines. That is absolutely true. And I don't, I, I think that there are people who I have friends who have pictures of themselves with their current friends yes. in kindergarten. And they did, they did have the consistency and even with the consistency of the same same neighborhood, same town, same people, they still felt like they were wearing masks. I think we're all, it's maybe that we're all looking for a way to explain why we feel that way. Because we make the assumption that nobody else does. But you're bringing up the point that probably most of us feel that way at some point, yeah. if not all the time. In some ways I do, having read your book, literally, this is just coming to me. In some ways I do feel like now I could almost reframe the fact that I've never felt tethered to any community. You know, I, I practiced being cool. I practiced being in music and then I was a science geek and then I was a teacher and then I became Catholic and I grew up like I've gone through all these different versions of myself and I have never felt grounded in any community. I've always been an outsider. 
standing there looking in, you know, and seeing what, what's, what are we wearing today is, you know, what kind of shoes should I have? And I've, I've really felt like an outsider, but now it kind of makes me think it could also be the shortcut to the awareness that we do wear masks. We all do because I've had to put it on and take it off so many times. I get it. It's a mask. And then now what? What do I do with these feelings of being disassociated? Yeah, and the idea that we're never going to walk into a room and say, oh, these yeah. are my people. You know, oh, I finally made it to the place where I don't have to put on a mask. We're, that room doesn't exist. And to cling to this idea of I just have to find the perfect version of myself that aligns with the perfect version yeah. of my life that's such an illusion that if we can let it go, that's taking a step yeah. toward freedom. Yeah. So let's get back to the book. Page 102. Um, this was coming to the end of your story about the drinking. And you said, I craved tangible ways to feel more comfortable in my own skin. And I was willing to do anything I could, except, of course, listen to my own body which told me over and over that it was time to quit drinking. I hoped that something outside of me would tell me what was wrong with me so I could go ahead and fix it once or fix it all at once, just like a leaky shower. I hoped that the solution was simple, like cutting, cutting carbs or getting up earlier. And I did absolutely everything I could to stay in my head and out of touch with my own body. I mean, yeah. I have tried every hack. I truly thought I was smarter than my own body at all times. You know, mm -hmm. I use pills to wake up and calm down and feel different ways and manipulating my food and manipulating everything. So what do you think why do you think we're afraid to be inside of our body? Do you think it's just a lack of skill? Do you think it's because nobody ever tells us that? That's a huge part of it. That's a huge part of it. I mean, I was raised and affirmed for being mm. smart and intelligent and getting, getting good grades. I think there is the lack of skill. I think a big piece of it for me was shame. I was raised with this. And, and not because anything bad happened or because anyone was abusive, but there was a deep feeling of there is something wrong with my body that is shameful and ugly and must be covered up and denied. Um, you know, I think, I think there's something about learning how to feed ourselves and learning how to feel our feelings that in polite society, there's no room for it. There's no room for the very real mess of what it is to be a person. That sometimes to be a person, it means like falling on the floor and having an ugly cry temper tantrum. Or, you know, sometimes we bar for PR pants. And these are just, this is just the, this is the MO of having a human body. But there is something in our culture, or at least when I was raised, this is the message that I got of keeping it on the straight and narrow, staying within a box, staying within expected behavior. And then anytime our body was 
doing anything outside of that expected behavior, there was something yeah. wrong. And so I got this equivalence of body wrong, brain good. And I mean, I spent years, I mean, the book opens in a scene in a therapy session. I've done so much therapy. And when I do any sort of regression or deep dives into that pit in my stomach that makes me feel like I'm not enough, yeah. it's shame. It's shame at having a human body. And even when I think about, you know, remember being in like seventh grade and like your body is different and you're like sweating and you've got zits and things are happening and they're talking to you about like periods and sex and nothing really makes sense. And they're talking to you about it in a cerebral way. And they're talking about it like, and also this is bad and dangerous and you need yeah. to be afraid of it. And just this feeling of deep fear of our own body. So for me, it comes from this place of, of shame and it didn't shame and fear. And it didn't even have to come from some traumatic event. It was just everyday life. Everyday life made me feel like I, having a body. Was I would to like be to of. start, this is going to be classified under first world problems, but I would like to s start a trauma recovery group for people who have never had trauma and find that traumatizing. Like one of my biggest shames is that I don't have a reason to be, have so much shame. And I remember my mom used to say, I was painfully modest of my body. Like if you came in the house when I was in, going into the shower, like I was wrapped in three layers. I didn't want to be seen naked. I had this deep shame. And I used to spend hours wondering, was I like sexually abused as a toddler? Like, where did this come from? And my mom used to make comments too, that I came with it like this, that, that shame was just part of my makeup. But in some ways, I mean, of course my mom's wonderful, but nobody ever said, oh, there's nothing wrong with you. Oh, that's shame. It's like not realizing your farts stink and then being so ashamed of it. And I didn't realize shame hurts. Everybody has it. And it's a normal part of being a human being. And it's almost been shameful to me that I can't explain my shame. I, I don't have a trauma to point to that says, this is why I'm so messed up <laughs> or I'm struggling. Well, what you're talking about is this left brain dominance of everything has to have a reason. And we all have to agree that that reason is reasonable. That, well, you're only allowed to have body shame if something right. bad happened to your body. And it's like, well... Uh, this is, again, seeking external validation for our own experience. And stepping away from that is kind of step one. But it's, you know, it's like step one, which is the size of El Capitan and Yosemite. Right. Like it's a pretty big You step. talk about on page 107 that you used to talk and tell your, your therapist stuff, hoping she could read between the lines of your stories because you could handle the hard truth, but not the uncertainty. There is shame mm. in uncertainty. Sister, that is so true. Not knowing produces so much shame for me. I would rather you tell me for sure you have a mixed bag of bipolar, BPD, uh, narcissistic personality disorder. Also, you know, there's like, I would rather you told me I had 10 things than say, I don't know, maybe you just feel bad.
Like I can't. Or, or you're you're perfectly healthy. There's right. nothing wrong with you. But we search for these stories because, well, the words I use to describe that is we're trying to outthink our feelings. I think that's a brilliant yeah. way of putting it. Yeah. And our feelings come from a completely different part of our brain. It is pre-verbal. It is not, you are not going to be able to write some kind of illiterate or literate prose about your feelings. Your feelings are just grunts a lot of the time. farts. I mean, maybe it's something <laughs> you ate. I don't know. That's one of my favorite analogies. But so I want to talk about your turning point. Um, and it's the same turning point that I came to which on page 117, you talk about, I was letting my body figure it out. So getting out of your head and starting to trust your feelings, which is super scary because our whole life we've been thinking our body does not know what it's doing and we have to figure this out. But on page 131, you say, I was tired of chasing praise and my proof gathering felt like an endless Sisyphean push and I understood that at the rate I was going, I would never figure it out. And I was sliding into despair. I got so frustrated to be confronted by the hard truth that I was my own saboteur. Doing was all I've ever known. I, it was how I measured myself against other people. And realizing that my value is not determined by my accomplishments means what is my value so talk to me about how that felt to let go to like be like well you know what if i'm gonna be a fat lazy shrew then let's get going on it like let's get started how did that feel well i'll caveat that with saying that that is that is life's work that feeling of having to consistently let go is not something that you do once and then you're fixed. It is a ongoing peeling of the onion layers to learn that. Like, I'll talk about how I quit drinking seven years ago, seven years in one month. So I have not had a drink in over seven years and I would not consider myself sober. And it's not because I'm using anything. I really like I'm off. I don't I don't really use anything at all. I'm not doing anything to intoxicate myself. But what I mean is there are still these moments where my feelings are so intense and I am so desperate to change the way I feel that I will do something compulsively to change my feeling. And it's doom scrolling on Twitter. It's compulsive shopping. It's eating a handful of chocolate covered strawberries, things that, you know, my right mindedness may not push me to do, but that in that moment, I need it. And it's because I need tangible proof. It may even be tangible proof that I'm alive and that I'm able to interact with this world. This idea of, of shopping as some sort of healing process what it is it's satisfying that hunting and gathering part of us and it's proving that i'm alive because i'm able to interact with others in this world in a way that shows i have worth i am i am successful enough to buy this sweater and it's still this seeking of validation from the outside world and so to say i have let go and allowed my feelings to lead me is is 
totally not the case. I've, I've done it and I've brought it into my life as a lifelong practice and I'll never be done. And that still seven years later makes me crazy. I call it emotional sobriety. Um, and mm. it speaks to your point where we get all caught up the, the rule, the rule makers, you know, that being sober means you have 0% alcohol. Meanwhile, those people are sucking on Jolly Ranchers and mainlining coffee and smoking cigs. And it's like, okay, could we just, could we just admit none of us are sober? Like we all have a drug of choice and mm -hmm. I don't mean to, mm -hmm. you know, to undermine the fact that, you know, there are very real addictive drugs out there. But I think that this thought that you're sober because you don't drink alcohol, it, well, it depends on how you define sober. But for me, I, I believe in emotional sobriety where in every single situation, I try to figure out what my feeling is that I'm reacting to. I'm not reacting to the outside world. I'm reacting to my feelings, but it's, that's part of being human. I, I don't, I don't think there's ever going to be mm. a day because that's our emotional system. It's our operating system. It's so yeah. true. Yeah. If you have an iPhone, you're probably not. Hello, thank you. Since they introduced <laughs> that endless scroll tech where you don't even have to push the reload. I mean, we've all gone off the cliff with the damn phones. It's so true. Mm. It's so true. Um, so what is your biggest reward, um, intrinsic, of course, would you say to living this way? Like if somebody's listening mm. and they're like, well, if nobody's sober, then why, then who cares if I mute my emotions on purpose with alcohol, let's just say alcohol. What, what are we, what are we getting out of this? What is, if we were going to write a commercial, I, I'm not sure we've done a service yet. <laughs> than all these feelings you have to feel. I mean, ain't nobody got time for that, right? The, re the intrinsic reward is presence. And presence is its own reward. Being present for your own life to experience the highs and the lows at their highest and their lowest. I think that that's what we're here to do. And so I'm somebody who to a certain extent wants to, you know, run, run headfirst into a burning building of emotions to feel it as shitty as it is. And as much as we don't want to do it, moving past that, not wanting to do something is what we're here to do so that it's this continual feeling of up leveling and growth with this ability to be present with all of the ugliness that is being a person because then, and only then are you actually going to be able to experience the beauty of what it is to be a person. I remember early on in sobriety, suddenly there were these things called mornings that I had, I had never experienced them. I mean, at least not for a long time. And there were these incredible sun sunrises. I lived in Colorado at the time and I had this, these, a view of the mountains for the sun sets out my kitchen and out into the plains for the sun rises out of my, the other side of my, my apartment and being able to watch the sunrise and be fully there for it to be fully connected with the air and the sun and my dog that that's its own reward. Cause otherwise you're just sort of skipping across the surface of your own experience. I see people, you know, drinking and 
being not sober through incredible events, weddings, or, you know, celebrations or vacations. And it's, what are you doing that for? If you're going to numb yourself through the best parts of your life. And my experience is that some of the best parts of my life are the most raw and real and unfiltered moments where it's just me and my experience going at it. So I would say in a word, presence. Yeah. And as a drinker, I I think I would have had a hard time listening to your, your memory of the sunset and the dog because I had never experienced that. What I, in that I'd watched sunsets with my dog before, but I was always thinking too early to drink or even before alcohol was necessarily um, a problem for me, it was still an added benefit. You know, every situation is better if you add alcohol. And what I have found is that the more alcohol that you would, that I would add, the, the less present I could be. Of course, it takes you out of yourself. You're intoxicated. You're not, you're not in touch with your body and you're, it's a physical presence. I would definitely agree with you. Why are you doing it to numb yourself through um, the best times of your life? You know, I used to think vacation was game on. We can drink in the morning. And, you know, I have good memories from vacation. I, I'm not going to carry my bag of regrets mm-hmm. around. But now it's so much more intense. And it's so much more intense. And it's a good, in a good way, in a good way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember when I was writing my book, I sent the first version to an editor and her feedback was, all of my writing was really analytical, but I was never in scene. So she said I needed to write more in scene. So instead of saying, and I took this really cool trip and it was awesome and I loved it, be like, I was driving down the road and the sun was doing this and I could, I was listening to this song. And it was really interesting to hear that feedback because it's not just that I wasn't writing in scene, I wasn't yeah. living in scene. Because if you were, play, I feel like a lot of people who choose alcohol have also have a lot of anxiety, whether it's social anxiety or just generalized anxiety or whatever that might look like. There's just a fear of being present in the world because of judgments or whatever it is. Um, and so being super in your head is kind of the same thing as choosing to drink and numb out. And and throughout my entire life, even before drinking, I was so in my head that I wasn't present then either. Well, and I would say you just hit the nail on the head in that quitting drinking is not enough. Because like you found a, a lot of these things that you, you're coming to, you discovered those things sober. You were more depressed and less motivated sober than you were drinking. And I was the same as well. And so like we were talking earlier and I said, we're trying to outthink our feelings. And if you quit drinking right. and stay in your head, yeah, you might as well go back to drinking. I mean, yeah, that is hell on earth is to, it is to like thinking of your brain, like a horse to be on an uncontrolled horse with no bridle, no stop. And you're just being run around in circles. Of course, that's terrifying, which is why, you know, and I teach this in my program, we have to couple the sobriety with the 
now I say emotional sobriety, because otherwise, and you, you use the words on page 2003, our emotions are like holding a knife to our own throat. It's, it's big, it's scary. And so what you decided was on page 204, you talk about letting yourself unravel, letting yourself be messy. And you discovered that the together version of me would always be there. That's what I loved. You said, because the together version of me is as much as any other permutation of my identity on any given day, that this fear that if we feel our emotions and feel the shame, that we're going to become the shame instead of letting it pass through us or become the anxiety instead of letting it pass through it. And I think, yeah, like anatomy 101, your feelings aren't permanent. They are like poop. They're going to pass, especially if you let go of the stuff. But you say, I got it together by falling apart. And I find that beautiful. Thank you. Oh, Colleen, you're absolutely right. The fact is, if you think that you're to quit drinking or to quit using, everything in your life is going to stay the same, except you're not drinking or using anymore. You're tripping like that to make that one change to choose to be present in your life is going to change everything. And not in a way that is like getting hit by a truck. It's going to happen slowly. It's going to happen gradually. And at a certain point, you're going to look back and realize how far you've come. And you're going to know that you have done it from your own volition, being fully present with yourself and your own experience. And it's going to be a sense of pride and ownership that if you've been using for a while, you probably haven't felt in a while. And I remember, I mean, I dealt with really intense anxiety and I had some very specific triggers of if this thing happens, I will be annihilated. I will no longer exist on this planet. I, it will literally kill me if this thing happens. And what I have experienced is that the world will, as you, as you unravel, as you grow into this new version of yourself, the world will put those situations in front of you not as a test so much, but as a signpost. I recently, within the last couple of weeks, experienced something that would have been my absolute deathly fear five years ago. And I experienced it. And I was fully, I, I even thought about pulling out my phone and just like diving into my phone and not witnessing it. But instead I was fully present for the thing that was happening. I let it flow through me, like you said, like just the digestive system, let it work. I let it happen. And then afterwards I was fine. And I had processed it instead of, you know, leaving it right here for it to become some kind of trauma that's going to come out as an angry outburst when I least expect it. So the presence is its own reward because it allows you to regulate your experiences so they don't, you don't have this emotional backup. I swear, when I first started post-drinking therapy, I had an emotional backlog yeah. of 25 years. Yeah. Yeah. But... And I coach clients too in early sobriety. This, it's not always going to be backed up. Like you will get through it mm -hmm. because we're so used to just stuffing our emotions, which is why we seem to think like we have all this anger or anxiety or shame inside of us because you do. But once you learn, you bring it into the consciousness little bit by little bit, 
when the circumstance presents the opportunity, oh, it's because I think this and this happened and how do I want to feel and you let it go. So it's it's being present and being able to process so that it you don't have to add it to your bag of bullshit that you carry around every day. Resentment and bitterness and fear and anxiety and all the little triggers like you can actually process that stuff in real time. And I don't think people understand this is a physical process. Like it is energy that gets stuck in your body. Yes, you're absolutely right. Towards the end of the book, page 224, I love what you said. And you said, it's showing up with everything you've learned and then leaving it all behind because you finally understand that you've always had everything you needed within you the whole time. Like Dorothy and her ruby slippers, you've had the power inside you all along. And here's what I I love where, where you go on. It's not needing anything. That's what it is. It's not needing. You don't, you can take comfort in the fact that you can provide for yourself. You can fill the void with breath and forgiveness. And when you come out of that Zen state, you can still have desires and you can still love the things that you want. You know, I, for me, I think sobriety means being sober and, you know, you're not wild and crazy and passionate and angry anymore. And it's, it's not that, it's not that way at all. And realizing like you said about your story of the worst thing happening to you, realizing that that can happen and you cannot be okay and then become okay without that thing changing. You don't need the people to say the words or the money to be in the account or like you can make yourself okay. Like you say, it's not needing anything that is the ultimate superpower ninja move, I think. I love that. Yeah. Not needing anything is the ultimate superpower and trusting yourself and whatever your higher power that flows through you so that you can trust yourself is the move. Yeah. Being able to trust yourself, which requires trusting your feelings, not your stupid brain, you know? So that kind of takes us through the book. Do you have any specific advice for somebody who's reading your book, which I highly recommend? Again, it's called Half Wild by Whitney Dermick. But do you have any specific advice for somebody who's reading your book or listening to us chat and they identify and they know that this is what they want? What would you say to somebody? Trust yourself. It may be the first opportunity to trust yourself um, where you may have been outsourcing your decisions, outsourcing your validation to something external. If you are feeling some kind of draw, trusting yourself is an incredible signal, both to yourself and to the universe, that you are ready to make steps in a direction that serves your highest good. Um, And I mean that literally, I don't mean that in some woo-woo way. I really think that for me, this process has been about identifying and eliminating the chaos in my life and especially the self-imposed chaos. Like I was so much at the mercy of my own self-destruction. And you guys, I wasn't laying in a gutter. I wasn't in some, I wasn't in some deep, dark hole. I was just a professional woman who drank too much to the point of feeling really sad and disconnected from my own life. And even then I felt what I was doing was bringing about chaos 
And that's where I was feeling really unsteady. So to identify the common, the commonalities between what's bringing in chaos and start to eliminate them is the path to finding alignment with what it is that you really value. And once you get into alignment, all the things that you think you want that feel way too far away, suddenly they become so much more reachable. They, they become something that you can just reach out and grab because you're in alignment with yourself and your own path. Maybe, at least for me, it was for the well, first Well, and time. I would say, I would point out the words that you're speaking of getting in alignment. That's a feeling, not a fact. Mm-hmm. That's a feeling, which that's, I mean, all feelings are just feelings. Certainty is a feeling, not a fact, just as much as uncertainty. But alignment is a feeling. And so- Whatever is like if if somebody's listening to this and their 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 heart lifts towards like I want that that's the invitation to move into alignment and then what you run up against I love at some point in the book the the funniest line of the book is you said the only real evidence that I was drinking too much was that I was consistently drinking too much other than that there was no evidence and I'm like. You freaking nailed it. That is exactly what it's like to live in your head. That the only evidence that you have that you drink too much is that you drink too much. That's it. So I feel like there's some mental math we could do to make that go away. (laughs) But alignment is a feeling. And so following what lifts your heart, you know, it's not a mental math problem. It truly is. Ah, that sounds good. Well, is there anything I didn't ask you that you want to share or anything that you thought about before we got started that you want to be sure to mention? You know, Colleen, I think you were very thorough. Well, your book is my new favorite book. So. Um, <laughs> thank you. I'm so glad that you liked it. Again, it's half wild. It's the third half wild that's out there. So mine has the subtitle, A Prayer for a Generation of Roaming Malcontents. It's the one with the dog on the cover. If you look on Amazon or Etsy. And everyone, nearly everyone that's read it has told me that when they read it, they feel seen, which I know when I was in, in a place where I wasn't feeling in alignment, that's one thing that I needed most was to feel seen. So I created this book as a prayer for those people out there like me who are feeling not quite right. Like they got like a shopping cart with one wheel out of alignment and they're ready to just push forward. Taking a leading role in your own life is simultaneously one of the most courageous things that you've ever, you could ever do, but also the most mundane. You know, it's not, it's not acts of valor and bravery every single day. Some days it's just getting out of bed yeah. and taking a shower. And the more we recognize that that the mundane is kind of the, are the moments that become the mythical nature of our lives the sooner we can embrace our half wild. Well, I love it. Thank you so much for being my guest. And I can't wait to meet you next time I'm in Asheville. So I'll let you know when I'm going to be around because I definitely want to connect in real life. So it was so good to just chat with you today. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, please take the time to rate and review the show so that other people can find it. I really appreciate it. And check out the show notes for any resources I've mentioned, including links to follow me on Instagram and join my private Facebook group where I connect with my tribe every day. I love it in there and we have so much fun. And finally, 
If you're ready to redefine sobriety so that you can feel excited about quitting drinking, follow the link to my 10 Days to Spontaneous Sobriety course, where I will help you eliminate, eradicate, obliterate, cancel your desire to drink. Because looking and feeling your best is addictive too. I'll see you soon.